We are in Romans uh, chapter 8, potentially one of the richest uh, minds of of gospel truth for us. Considering the question, the main thing on our mind at the moment here is, why is the promise of God's good working so certain? That's what's being considered here in Romans uh, 8, 28 and 29. And and we are going to read all the way to the end of the chapter here shortly but just just for the moment here let let me just read you from 28 to verse 30 okay it says and we know that all things work together for good to those who love god to those who are called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. The Christian life that you and I experience, the day-to-day life of a Christian, from the point of your initial exposure to Christ, which was a moment in time, and then a drawing, your being drawn to Christ, conviction of sin and in the, the early beginnings of your understanding of sin and your your here your 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 ear to the offer of God's forgiveness of sin and the offer of righteousness and, and life by faith in Christ became repentance became faith in Christ if you have indeed gone down this this path of, of knowing the Lord and coming to salvation and then it becomes an ongoing experience of salvation and, and testing of faith. Uh, the life of faith is, is a testing of our faith. It's a testing of our knowledge and our, our belief in Christ. And then on to what the Bible finally does call glorification. That's the word that was mentioned here that we read a moment ago. Um, called, justified, glorified. You saw that word glorified there. And for you and I, this this experience of knowing the Lord Jesus is something that very definitely happens at a place in time that you and I experience. And yet for God, this thing that you and I experience and are in the process of experience, the, the gracious favor of God is something that has been determined before time. Before time, this work of salvation was in the mind of God and prepared in the mind of God. The Bible speaks about this in terms of foreknowledge and predestination, those two words we've read in this passage here. Another word we use that's associated with predestination and foreknowledge is the word election. And you and I need to know what the Bible says about these words. What does the Bible mean by these words? And what is the intent, what is the purpose of God using these words? A very, very, very condensed reminder is what we've been reading over the last two or three weeks is is the fact that Romans has been building the case that there is a hope for Christians. There is a reason to remain confident and hopeful in the person of Jesus Christ. You remember the term um, that, that we are sons provided we suffer with him. 
Christian suffering is part of the Christian experience, and yet there's hope in that Christian experience. It's, it's not something to turn you away from Christ. It's something to expect and to be prepared to endure. And we read already, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose is a code word here in Romans 8 for a Christian. Do you love God? Have you been called according to his purpose? Those are two unique uh, characterizations of a Christian. They love God. They are called according to his purpose. These two things help identify and mark out who this Christian is. Have you come to love God? Have you come to love God? Is is your love of God part of your own experience of the Christian life? Are, are you bound to him and lost without him? That's If, if you've been called according to his purpose, that means... That a, a, a calling indicates this direction thing that's happening when you have been called to him. You are moving to him. You are moving with him. You've been called for his purpose. Why did that happen? And how did that happen? These concepts we're beginning to consider here, foreknowledge and predestination, are going to help answer this question. You're going to see that God is the one who has granted it. God is the one who has granted that your head would turn toward him, that you would be drawn to him, that you would love God, that you would submit to being called according to his purposes. God granted it. God drew you. You responded in faith. No other master, no other hope of eternal life is is, is our knowledge, is our experience when we come under this sway of, of God, which in God's mind began before time. God's foreknowledge and God's predestination are shockingly frequent teachings throughout the Bible. They're very, very common. And, and I wonder if you've thought about, number one, do you agree with it or not? Do you think God foreknew those he would save? Do you think God predestined those he would save? Do you think the Bible teaches it? And do you know people who really dislike that teaching, maybe yourself included, possibly? Um, I, I, I know a lot of people who really, really dislike this teaching, but the dislike of it, and, and, and maybe the frustration or the confusion or the, the difficulty in understanding it is very common. And in the Lord's ministry, we're going to look at John 6, 64. In the Lord's ministry, as he preached, as he taught through his years, he ran into people who listened to him speaking about foreknowledge, predestination, or election, God's work in saving, he, he would speak to people about this and it makes people mad. It consistently causes people to be upset. Read with me John 6, 64. The Lord Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. He's preaching to an audience, maybe, you know, 50 times the size of our congregation. He's saying, 
Some of you do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. Now, notice that belief is something that is not in them. They're, they're, they're not exercising belief. They don't have belief. Predestination and foreknowledge and election don't know faith. They don't know belief. The Lord Jesus is beginning this comment here saying, there are some of you who don't believe. There isn't faith in some of you. Now I want to ask you why. And the Lord will address that. The Lord's going to answer that question for you. Verse 65 says, And he said, Therefore I have said to you, No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. What explains the unbelief in the crowd? Why does the Lord Jesus assert to them that some of you don't believe? Why? Well, he says, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted by my Father. Why don't they believe? God hasn't granted it. Well, what a, what a non-intuitive answer to this problem. This, this is not something that comes out of human reason. This comes from the mind and the logic of the one who knows everything. This comes from the almighty, omniscient God's mouth. He says, the reason some of you don't believe is because God hasn't granted it. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting thing for the Savior to say to people who don't believe him. Many would say it wasn't a very wise way to uh, conduct your evangelism program because it doesn't draw people to you. It doesn't attract people to you. It makes people mad. And that's exactly the effect that it has. Verse 66 says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They heard him say this, and it was offensive to many of them. They said, that's just crazy talking right there. We, we, don't, we don't agree with that. That's not the reason why people don't believe. They would say, they don't believe because you're a heretic. They don't believe because you've been claiming to be God. That's what they would say. What does Jesus say? You don't believe because God hasn't granted it. Look at verse 67. Let's think on this subject. Think of the meat of this subject. Verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away some? And Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now he has faith. Those are words of faith. Those are not words of a robot. Those are not words of somebody who, who the, the, the weird, shallow way of thinking about election and predestination is that God forces people to do one thing and forces some other people to do another thing. What does Peter say? God, where else will we go? What else are we going to do? What's in his heart? Belief, faith, hope. He believes. What would Jesus say is the reason for that? God has granted it. God has granted it. When God grants, faith can take root. It's an amazing thing. Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Verse 69, also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you? How do you explain the faith and Peter's confidence that he knows that these are the words of life. He knows that this is hope. How does the Lord Jesus turn the explanation yet again? I chose you. Well, that's not intuitive either, but that is the Lord's answer. This is God talking to men about faith and about election 
and about God granting faith and hope. Foreknowledge and predestination are indeed God's predetermined intention. There's something that is in the mind and the work of God that is his prerogative. And as we study this passage in Romans 8, this becomes our confidence. If you are a Christian, it becomes your confidence in your certainty of salvation. And I'm going to show you this as we continue to study this passage here in Romans 8. The main goal of predestination, the main goal of predestination can be seen in verse 29. I'm going to start at 28 again, 828, which we've read a few times. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, a twofold characterization of the Christian. And it goes on to say, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, your faith, if you believe that the Christ has become your righteousness, is a response to God's call, which is going to happen. It's, it's step three in foreknowledge, predestination, called. It's step three. Your faith is a response to this that, that saves you. It is indeed something that impacts you eternally. When you hear the gospel, when you reckon on the Christ as the Savior, this is you and God, and it becomes your righteousness. But it was determined, this, this, this thing for you was determined pre-time for a greater purpose than your salvation. And it's right here in the sentence we're reading. It's not simply how we're going to escape damnation and move on to eternal life. Why did God foreknow and predestine? Why did he do it? It's so Christ, look at what it says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Why did he foreknow? Why did he predestine? So that those that were foreknown and predestined would be conformed to the image of his son. Why? That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Why does God have foreknowledge and predestination? Why does God do foreknowledge and predestination? Why? What is motivating God to think and to act and to will this way? It's for the son. It's for the honor of the son. It's that something would happen for the Son, the Christ. It's so that the Christ wouldn't be alone at the end of the age. Who is going to be with the Christ at the end of the age? It says it. It's just a, these, these aren't hard questions. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Why did he foreknow? So that there would be many brethren. If there weren't many brethren, who would be with the Christ at the end of the age? Nobody. Crickets. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's for the son's honor. It's for the son's joy. It's for the son's glory. God knows, and I'm going to give you definitions and examples, but God foreknows, and then he predestines, and he determines 
an outcome at the end of the age that is so that the Son, the Christ, the man who is God, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Isn't that amazing? God's first explanation to you and I of what foreknowledge and predestination is all about is all about the, the joy and the honoring and the glory of the Son. It said he wouldn't be there by himself. It's amazing. He would be the greatest heir of many heirs. Predestination for knowledge is for the Son, and it's to surround the Son with many brethren. So do you realize that if you believed in Christ for righteousness, if you have put your trust and hope in Him, and, and you have indeed been called according to His purposes, you're, you're pursuing Him because you have an interest in your heart and God's purposes. You are giving your life and your heart for God's purposes. You have been joined to Him. Do you realize that that's a byproduct of God's foreknowing and predestining and creating a people who are in the likeness of the Son, that the Son is not alone at the end of the age, that the Son is to be the honored heir and king of a peculiar people like him. Colossians 1.18, is we, we would read references to this idea of the Lord being the honored great one at the end of the age. It's all over the New Testament. Colossians 1.18 says, He is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the church. The head of the body. Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead. He's the head of the body of the church. Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead. That in all things he may have the preeminence. In all, in everything Christ is to be preeminent. That means supreme. Number one. Have the greatest honor. This is the Christ. Paul makes another interesting reference to this that we're talking about. God's plans for the end of time before time. God's plans for eternity, pre-eternity in Ephesians 1.4. We see a comment on this as well, Ephesians 1.4. Look at this one. Just as he chose us in him, just as God chose us Christians in Christ, we could say it that way, just as he chose us in him, when? When did the choosing happen? Before the foundation of the world. He chose the foreknown, the predestined, the called. He chose them. He chose those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. He chose them, right? Before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God's, God's predetermination is his love on and for people before they are even a people. This is something that God has done outside of time 
to create a unique and holy people for his own loving purposes. If you look on down at Ephesians 1.12, it's it's a rather long passage, but there is a little summary statement here. Why, Why has he done this? Why it is this text in Ephesians 1.12, how, how is it described? It says it is summarized saying it's for the praise of his glory. Why, did, why does he do, why does he have this thought and make this plan out of time, which involves the choosing of a people to make them holy in love to the praise of his glory? Was it for you? It was to the praise of his glory. It, it, it was something that, and, and I believe as, as we get to the end of the age, we will see with a clarity we don't yet have a grasp on. We will see how this, this, this act of God before time for knowing, predestining, calling, and then making holy and righteous and, and bringing this people to the side of the Christ that he would be the firstborn among many that he would be the chief heir among many brethren. This is a great, great declaration and praise of the glory of God. Whatever foreknowledge and predestination is, and I think you have a general idea. You might have some interesting explanations of it, but I think we have a general idea of what I mean. But whatever it means, it is for the Son. It is something done for the Son that has amazing collateral effects to you and me. It has astonishing collateral effects to you and me. Namely, righteousness, justification, eternal life, peace with God, co-heirs with Christ. I mean, the the benefits that have come to you and I by virtue of this truth are, are just staggering. Foreknowledge. Let's talk about the definition of foreknowledge very briefly. What does the word for mean in front of? What does knowledge mean? It means what you what you know. Okay, it means knowing beforehand, right? That's not a hard definition. The definition of foreknowledge is easy. Now, a lot of people do some weird grammatical gymnastics to describe what this means theologically. What is pre Destination mean? What's pre mean? In front of. What's destin mean? It means determine. Predetermine. What does that mean? It means to decide beforehand, right? Foreknowledge means know before. Predestined means determine before. Aren't you glad those words are so easy to define? Look at Ephesians 1 5 with me. Ephesians 1 5. Now let me just say, I'm going to say, like, I'm going to try to say this in only one or two sentences. Some Christians are so offended by the doctrine of election, of, of foreknowledge of predestination. Some people dislike the simple explanation of this so much, they give another meaning to it. Here's what they say They said, God before time, looked all through the corridors of time and he saw all the millions of people who would believe in him and so he chose them. 
He saw that they had faith and he put his choice on them. That's the explanation of some Christians, which is ludicrous. It makes no sense in the world. The other thing it means is what I've just been telling you it means. God decided who he wanted to save. God loved the people, determined he would save them, and then save them. That's the other thing it means. That's what it really does mean. The other reason, the other explanation makes no sense, but you need to know that there are um, two ideas surrounding this. Look at Ephesians 1.5. We'll start in four because it's going to use two words for us. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did God foreknow? Why did God elect? Well, Because he loved and it was his will. That's why. He didn't look into the future of time before there was time and decide that he would recognize faith. It just says he willed to do so. Consider the idea of foreknowledge and predestination when we look at Isaiah 45, verse 1. Isaiah 45. Now think about this concept of foreknowledge and predestination. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. And Joyce, would you turn the slide on that has the picture of um, Cyrus on there, or the, the map about this? Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. You see, Cyrus is being spoken of to have great favor from God, to subdue nations, okay? What does it mean to loose the armor of kings? It means to make your enemies weak. If you take the armor off of those other kings, they become weak. To open before him double doors. Double doors are the strong doors. What does it mean if Cyrus has the double doors open for him? It means he can go right through them, right? So that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know I, the Lord, who call you by your name. I'm the God of Israel. What's his name? Cyrus. I call you by name. Verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Who has he known? Cyrus. I have known you, Cyrus, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. We can keep reading the entire chapter. Now, this picture here shows you where Isaiah is speaking. So if you're looking at the picture on the left, in the lower part of the picture, you see a white arrow pointing to the ministry of Isaiah. And then up higher and to the right, you'll see where Cyrus shows up in time. How many years separate? Right there. 
440 and 700. So here's Isaiah, and here's Ezra and Nehemiah. This is where Cyrus shows up. How many years separate these two occurrences? Close to 300 years. Okay. Was Cyrus foreknown? Was Cyrus predestined? What does foreknowledge and predestination mean? It means God writes history down to the details of the people and their favors and their non-favors. How old was Cyrus when the prophet said these words? He wasn't born. Do you realize that these things are determined before Cyrus had parents? These things were determined before Cyrus had grandparents. Cyrus wasn't even a Jew. So let's think for a moment about rejection of this teaching and the offense of this teaching. When the Bible tells us that God has chosen someone for great salvation, we approve. We, we think that's right and, and we, we consider that kind of a little easier to believe. When Christ spoke about this truth, as I mentioned a moment ago, we were reading a verse in John where many people are offended by these things. That was in John 6. Consider with me John 10, 24. Look at John 10, 24. Rejection of this teaching and the offense of this teaching is the most common reaction to this teaching. John 10, 24. Then the Jews surrounded him, that is the Lord Jesus. The Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe. Why don't they believe? He says, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, verse 25 says they don't believe. Why don't they believe? Number one, it says they're not a sheep, right? And then he uses a, a sentence or he uses an idea or a phrase to explain how did someone become a sheep? How did someone become a believing sheep? Can you tell? The answer is in verse 29. How did someone become a believing sheep? The Father gave them to the Son. That's election. There is constant friction between the Lord Jesus and, and the crowds who listen to him preaching. And one of the things that you learn is while the Lord Jesus is preaching to these crowds, 
Many of them hear the call to believe, right? Many hear that they are to repent of their sin, they are to believe He is God, that, that faith in Christ is the only way to peace with God or to find forgiveness of your sins. If you look with me at Matthew 22, verse 12, I'm going to... I'm just going to remind you that the Lord himself is the one who uses the phrase that many are called and few are chosen. There is a general call that goes out to everybody in every sermon, right? When people preach the gospel, when the Christ preaches the gospel, when people hear about the Lord Jesus, many are called. But why does the scripture say few are chosen? Well, it's because that's one of the ways of explaining why so few actually believe the gospel. So Matthew 22 and verse 12 is the end of a parable. And it's actually a little bit of a scary parable. The Lord is telling a story about a person who has come into the wedding banquet. And he's not actually prepared. He's not properly dressed to be in the wedding banquet. So he pictures somebody who has tried to sneak into eternal life, if we could put it that way. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him in outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. What was wrong with this man? He was at the wedding banquet. He was not chosen. We won't add any more comment. This, this concept that, that there are some called salvation in Christ because he's chosen them is the reality. The truth of God's foreknowledge and predestination and calling are all throughout Scripture. And it is the fact of God's saving power, God's saving authority, his unchanging nature, his unswerving determination in his purposes is the reason that when we are reading in Romans chapter 8, when we are discovering the reasons to have confidence and hope and salvation, that's why we have confidence and hope and salvation, because salvation is entirely Grounded in him and in his determination and in his power and in his foreknowledge and predestination. It makes Christians be completely secure in their hope for salvation and in all things working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It makes us feel happy. I'll continue to prove the point. Let's look at a couple illustrations of God's Foreknowledge, as the scripture speaks about his foreknowledge throughout the history of time, I want you to keep realizing the Bible doesn't just mention this infrequently. Genesis 15, verse 13, speaks of another instance of, of foreknowledge and predestination. Genesis 15, verse 13, then God spoke to Abraham. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them. Your people will serve them. And they will afflict them for 400 years. The, the, the Hebrews would be slaves for 400 years. And this is being explained to Abraham. Also, I'm sorry, and also the nation whom they will serve, I will judge. And afterward, they, the Hebrews, will come out with great possessions. 
And you guys know what they're referring to there? What would happen those 400 years later? The, the, the Jews would leave Egypt with great wealth. They, they actually said they plundered the Egyptians because the, they asked the Egyptians for things as they were leaving and they gave them great possessions when they left. That's called predestination. This is called predestination. Acts 17.26 makes another reference to this very normal, typical way of God revealed to us in his word. Acts 17.26 is speaking about God and it says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men. From one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. You see that? Why do people live where they live? Why are people born where they're born? Why are some nations in great places and some nations in terrible places? Why do they have their different boundaries? Who determined all that? God. God has determined all of these things. Their pre-appointed times. When would they show up in history? Where would they show up in history? God has appointed these things. Look with me at Exodus chapter 9. One of the more typical illustrations of predestination in the scripture is here in Exodus 9 from verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, you know, Exodus 9 is early in the book of Exodus. This is kind of in the early, in the, in the, in the twilight hours of the Exodus, right? It's in the early days of the Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now listen to this next verse carefully. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. What is he saying? He's saying, if I chose to, and if I did do this, all of you Egyptians would just simply be gone. You see that? Now keep reading with me. What is he what is he going to say? Remember, this is God really speaking quite prophetically to Moses. Verse 16 says, But indeed for this purpose I have raised you up. Why doesn't God just wipe them off the earth with a pestilence? He says, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Why will Moses and the nation of Egypt experience the plagues and the devastation and ultimately the death of the firstborn? Why? Because the whole world would know of God's great power. Is this called predestination? Has God determined these terrible tragedies and Plagues before that they would happen and destroy an entire nation for his own namesake, for his own fame. Verse 15 is so insightful there. I'd never noticed it before. 
if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. That's not what he did. Consider a couple more examples with me, please. But don't forget, God foreknew two futures for Egypt there. Did you see that? God foreknew two futures for Egypt. Amazing thing to take note of there. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Peter writes, therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, now you're going to see two things here. They are disobedient. They will not believe. They will not put themselves under the the lordship of the Christ. They are disobedient. They have no faith. To those who are disobedient, quote, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Keep reading. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. What does that mean? Does it mean there's some people that will not believe because they were never chosen? That's what that means. It's hard for us to believe. We just we don't we don't even imagine, oh, how could that be? Let me read. Let, 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 let me offer you one tiny little piece of uh, insight here. When it says, they stumbled being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. One of the things that, that we have to keep in mind as we, we ponder about the offer of salvation, the gospel that is preached to men, will save some. And we're promised that in in many places, right? What if God never saved even anybody? What if God didn't save anybody? Would that be unjust? If God didn't save one person, would that be unjust? That's one of my few consolations. When, When I think about trying to get my mind around this, they stumbled being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. When we think about those who are not saved, if we believe in election and we think about those who are not saved, then we have to rightly determine, well, God did not elect them. And it makes us feel sad and it makes us feel confused. It makes us feel like, well, why wouldn't God save them? In Romans 9, which we will get to in February, we're, we're getting close to Romans 9. It goes into great depth to answering this question. But I do, I'm going to hold out to you right now one, one thing to chew on, one thing to think on is if God never saved anybody, he would not be acting unjust. 
So that he offers to save some, that he does save some, is grace. And it is generous. So let's think now to, let's look at Acts 13.48. This kind of looks at the other side of the coin, Acts 13.48. Peter tells us about those who believe, and they will by no means be put to shame. Peter speaks about those who wouldn't believe. And they were disobedient to the word which they were appointed. And now let, let's look at Acts 13:48, where it says, "Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord." And what does it say? And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It's predestination. It's election. It's all over the Bible. Predestination, foreknowledge, election is something in in the mind and in the will of God, and it is His. It's what He does. It's what He determined to do for the Son, that, that, that there would be brethren formed in the likeness of the Son, that He would not be the only heir, but He would be the heir with many brethren with Him at the end of the age. And so God had appointed and has appointed many to eternal life. There are many, many, many examples that, I mean, we literally could go on for another hour reading passages of Scripture together of how either these are illustrated in the Old Testament or spoken to in the New Testament. The final argument, however, The final argument I'm going to share with you today as we're wrapping this up here in Romans chapter 8, I alluded to last week, and I'm going to close with these same sorts of thoughts here today. These Christians who have been following the logic of, of, of Paul's letter, these people who are studying this letter along with you and I, we've been studying this letter, there is this theme in this main subject that is being taught to Christians, that is teaching Christians, you have a reason to hope in your trials and in the suffering that comes to you as co-laborers in Christ. Trusting in Him for your righteousness. Trusting in Him through trials when when, when someone's going to chop off your hand or punish you or torture you for your faith in Christ, you, you want to resist that. You want to run away from that. You're afraid of that. The gospel is exhorting you to keep your trust in Christ, to walk a course of faith in Christ. He's saying all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so the Christian is, is rousing up for himself this confidence that God is indeed for us. He is for us. And then he begins to speak about foreknowledge, predestination, justification, calling, and glorification. And I swapped two of those. I swapped number three and number four. Sorry about that. Christians are meant to have hope, even in trials, even in difficulties, because God is for you as a Christian. How do you know he's for you? You know he's for you because before you even heard a call of Christ 
foreknowledge put the love of God on you. Predestination established the time and the way you would hear and receive the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. The argument of Romans chapter 8 says God is in charge. God is saving from before you were a person. So remain confident and hopeful in Him. Walk with Him. Trust Him. Be faithful. The argument is saying that. That's why you should believe that foreknowledge and predestination and election are what I'm saying they are. It takes the, the, the variables out of your hands. It's all in God's hands. All of your salvation is in God's hands because salvation was in his mind and literally in his heart of love for the elect before time. That makes Christians be certain that their salvation is hopeful and reliable. So as we finish up this, look with me at verse 31. Actually, go all the way to 29. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 8.29, Romans 8.29. That the son, that he, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, so he predestined them. He also called them. The theme is God is the worker. God is the one at work. He's the one foreknowing. He's the one predestining. He's the one calling. He's the one justifying. He's the one glorifying. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and to what degree? If God is for us, to what degree? If God has been for us before you could blink, before you could breathe, if God was for us before there was an earth, if God's intention was that the Son would get to the end of the age with many brethren with Him as co-heirs with Him, if this has been God's agenda from before there was time, what should we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And the point is, is there is no charge that comes against God's elect. They are justified because he set his heart on them in love before they were people. And he determined that this is how they would come to the end of the age justified. It is God who justified, verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, his brethren, for you who have put your trust in Christ, you who need righteousness at the end of the age, you who will die and face the judgment. Has God put the guilt of your sin on your heart and, and drawn you to him to seek forgiveness, to, to seek hope of eternal life, you go to him and you confess your sins and you say, Lord, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Join me to this Christ that I may be with you forever. Lord, I, I, I love your purposes. I want your ways and, we, and we, we'll be like Peter. Where else will we go, Lord? What else will we do, Lord? Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. Do you see the threat of persecution on the mind of the Christian listening to the sermon? You and I aren't there just yet, but it could be next week. All day long we are killed, he says. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's how much the unchristian world hates these Christians. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We win. We conquer. We are victorious with our eyes and our hearts locked on to Christ for our righteousness, for our justification, for our life. Being led by the Spirit, I am persuaded, he finally says in verse 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the final argument in Romans chapter 8 for foreknowledge and predestination. God is the one who has been writing history before there was history, which included the foreknowledge and the predestination of a people that he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What a glorious, unfathomable privilege God has made available to you, to you who would hear this offer of forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. It is a great and glorious gospel, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this uh, promise, this great hope in Christ by the gospel. Oh Lord, I pray for the gift of conviction on every heart. Draw each one close to yourself. Lord, convict us of our sin. Give us a boldness and confidence to walk in faith in our repentances and our and our trust and our, our hope in you, Lord. Lord, use us for your purposes, I pray. Bring glory to your name, I pray. The great, great name of our Savior, who died and rose again. Amen.